Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you today from New York City. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined as usual by the notorious Jin Yumi, a.k.a. Jeremy Goldhorn. How are you, Jeremy? Very well indeed, Kaiser. Uh, Jeremy, we have a big announcement this week, don't we? We do indeed. We're delighted to announce that from today, Seneca is being produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina offers a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world, and we're very happy to be new members of their team. Stay informed about what's going on in China through the SupChina app, website, and newsletter. So today we're at the offices of the National Committee on United States-China Relations in Manhattan. Uh, this month marks the 50th anniversary of the founding of the National Committee, as it's known to those familiar with it. Uh, it was founded back in the dark early days of the Cultural Revolution, which also, you know, happened. Uh, it kicked off just a month before. And uh, just as the U.S. was really sliding into the morass of the Vietnam War. And the National Committee has been the standard bearer for deepening of understanding in this increasingly vital bilateral relationship. And so we are absolutely delighted today to be talking to Steve Orlins and Jan Barris, the president and vice president, respectively, of the National Committee. Steve, Jan, welcome to Seneca. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. And we're thrilled to be part of your inaugural podcast. Thanks, Steve. We're uh, long overdue to have you guys on, but I'm glad that we could make it this opportunity. Can we start talking about the, the history of the National Committee, its mission uh, and background to it? Absolutely. Jan was almost there at the, at the inception. She, she joined six years after the, after the inception of the committee, the creation of the committee. So she's our living history book. So the National Committee created in 1966 by a very interesting and sort of strange mix of bedfellows. On the one hand, you had Quakers who were very interested in peace with China, having served in China with ambulance corps, etc. You had a group of academics, sort of the first generation of China specialists, modern China specialists in the United States, many of whom, probably most of whom, were children of missionaries and who had grown up in China and therefore carried a special feeling toward the country. And then you had a small number of businessmen. All of these people felt that even as late as 1966, there was still a lot of tension in the air over McCarthyism. It still hadn't totally waned. And if you studied Chinese, as I did at the time, you were sort of looked on as a kami pinko. And the idea behind this organization was not to be a pro-China lobby. It was to provide a space, a safe space for to bring people together who have disparate points of view on China and to provide an opportunity for different points of view to be discussed and to be aired and to be considered. And the perspective, at least has been told to me by those who were involved in the founding, was really to find 
some policies and think about policies that would be in the best long-term interests of the United States vis-a-vis China. And some of, some of these scholars that you talked about, maybe we were like Lucian Pai and Lucian, Bob Scalapino. Bob Scalapino was our first chair. Mm-hmm. Um, Lucian, Doak Barnett. Yeah, Doak Barnett. But people... Legends in the field. Legends in the field. And they, all three of them, were chairman of the committee at one point or another in the early years. And we owe a huge debt to them. They were very thoughtful, very interesting people. Alex Eckstein, which isn't a name you hear quite so often. He was not the child of a missionary. He was a Yugoslavian professor of economics uh, at the University of Michigan, Chinese economics. But he also felt very strongly about the relationship and about the need to have some balanced discussion on the topic. That was the key. Your involvement goes back 45 years, and and you were there really from the beginning of the active phase of the National Committee in the the run-up to the the Kissinger-Nixon visits. Well, beginning of the active phase when it comes to actually doing things with China. Prior, from 66 to 71, 72 technically, the committee primarily, not primarily, totally focused on public education and public outreach, trying to give Americans opportunities to learn about China. You didn't have Wikipedia, you didn't have Google, you didn't have an internet in those days, and so information on China was quite rare. It was very difficult even for the committee because very few Americans were going into China at that time. A few doctors and scientists went in in the late 60s. But most of the information the committee had and disseminated came from Canadians or Europeans who had been traveling, had the opportunity to travel through China. And it was all about public education, public outreach programs. It wasn't until 1971 when the Chinese famously invited a visiting a delegation of ping pong players who were in Nagoya, Japan for an international tournament to stop off in China before returning to the United States. I was in Hong Kong at the time. I was in the Foreign Service and was standing at the Star Ferry waiting to go back to the Hong Kong side. And I saw a headline in the paper that said, you know, Americans invited to China. And I and the friends who were with me at the time thought it was yet another lurid Hong Kong tabloid headline and paid zero attention to it. But it turned out there had been a, a, a journalist who was paying attention to it, uh, a Newsweek journalist who called us. She was the, quote, communist editor at Newsweek at the time. So she only had four countries to cover, China, Albania, Cuba, and the Soviet Union. And she said, you know, I just, and and we used to do a lot of work for journalists, trying to provide them with whatever solid information we could on China. This woman called us and said, just came over the wires, Chinese have invited the Americans. Somehow she had heard that the U.S. Table Tennis Association, which had no money, no staff, no China knowledge behind it, wanted to be able to offer a reciprocal invitation while they were in China for the Chinese to visit the United States. So she said, hey, this might be something the National Committee is interested in. So she called us. I'm told that within a half day, we called our board. It was a much smaller board at the time. And the board agreed that we should take on the co-sponsorship of that visit, which we did in 72. And yes, I came in 71 to sort of help because Alex Eckstein, who I mentioned before, my professor at Michigan, when he knew the committee was going to be doing this, he wanted someone who knew protocol. So he figured... As Being in the State Foreign Department. Service as a State Department officer, I knew protocol, and I knew a lot of people that I had served with in Hong Kong who were now back on the China desk in D.C. There must have been a lot of hurdles that you had to overcome in order to do this ping-pong diplomacy thing. I mean, how, how what, what was involved in making this happen? A lot of hard work. Um, 
a lot of luck <laughs> and a lot of goodwill. I mean, there was an enormous interest in the United States in having this group come over. You know, once the team got here, they used to be asked, um, what's the most interesting thing that you found on your visit to the United States? Or what's the thing that surprised you the most? And at first, they always said, the warmth and friendship of the American people. So the first 18 times I heard that, I thought, They've been taught to say well, this. Well, of course they have been. But it was really true. As I traveled around with them, there was an enormous outpouring of interest and of warmth. Now, we had our moments. We had demonstrations. The first night in, I'm ashamed to admit, my hometown of Detroit, there was a very right-wing group that decided that while they were playing the Chinese national anthem to open the event, they would start throwing dead rats over the side oh, of the... Dead rats. Yes, oh dead God. rats. These are birchers? Or... Uh, these were bircher types, yeah, a guy okay. named Don Lopsinger. I forget the name of the organization. It will come to me. But um, And then if we have time, I'll tell you actually one of the most wonderful of the stories of that ping-pong trip that has to do with protests. But on the whole, Americans really were quite fascinated and quite welcoming. Uh, Steve, your, your involvement, uh, not with, with the committee itself, but uh, with China dates back just about as far, if not further. Um, my commencement of the study of Chinese started on um, April 30th, 1970. Not well, many of us can do that. That's, well, it's easy do to do because it was when Nixon announced the invasion of Cambodia. And I was an anti-war protester and I went to a professor of mine um, and I said, I want to understand why good people, the American government, do bad things, the war in Vietnam. And I'm going to start studying Vietnamese. And he, in his wisdom, said... Um, Steve, you can learn all about Asia. I, of course, was 19 years old. You can learn all about Asia through studying Chinese, and I'll get you a National Defense Foreign Language grant to study it. So come to my office tomorrow. <laughs> and the period of time it took me to tell the story was actually the entire time it took me to have that conversation with this professor. I went to his office the next day. I filled out the form, and that started my career with China. Amazing. So wow. when, the, when ping pong diplomacy occurred, I was, uh, I was a senior in college studying Chinese. Building on the protest movement, which started Steve's career in China, and particularly having to do with the Vietnam War, I mentioned before that there was an amusing story, so I'm going to jump right in here and tell it. One of the several jobs that I had during the time the ping pong team was here was I was the person who would sit next to the announcer who was doing the sort of sports color commentary and help him, or I was going to say her, but it never was a her, it was to help him pronounce the Chinese names, which was an impossibility <laughs> for any sports commentator in the United States at that time. So we'd been in several stops around the country, and when we were in Washington, D.C., we were at Coalfield House, University of Maryland. Coalfield House is a basketball venue, uh -huh. and so you have a long rectangle which where the baskets would be at each end. On the right-hand side, it was where the team entered. Behind me and the announcer in one of the longer sides was a group of about 250 seats that had been bought out by the Taiwan Embassy, Republic mm. of China Embassy. Across from that group of people on the other long end of this rectangle, 
sat a number of invited guests, including Tricia Nixon, who was there on behalf of her father representing the President of the United States. Up on the other short end, so across from where the team came in, was a balcony with about 250 students from the University of Maryland, all of whom, like Steve, were anti-Vietnam protesters. So we are sitting anti -war watching... Anti-war protesters. Anti-war, yeah, sorry, right. anti-war protesters. So we're sitting watching this performance. It's the ping pong exhibition. It's suddenly, you know, they're playing, and suddenly from behind us comes shouts of, kill Mao Zedong, down with China, defect to the United States, defect to Taiwan, we will protect you. Mao's killed more people than Hitler's killed Jews, on and on in the background. Wow. Across the way, Tricia, who is... Those of you who remember Trisha know she's very prim, very proper, never a hair out of place. She's sitting there with a smile on her face. Up on the balcony, you have these 250 student protesters shouting and stamping their feet. Trisha watches ping pong, Nixon bombs high fong. Trisha watches ping <laughs> oh pong, God. Nixon bombs high fong. So this cacophony of sounds and activity is going on while the Chinese and Americans are trying to play ping pong. And I'm saying to the announcer, talk, talk, say anything, just cover this noise. <laughs> My Lord. <laughs> has, this, has this been, I mean, has this been documented somewhere? Where, where, where can we send... No. Uh, Everybody's after me to write my memoir. Yes, and if I do, yeah. that will be one of my favorite stories. Now we have it recorded for posterity. <laughs> right. yeah. Now I don't have to write the book. Hooray! <laughs> we'll just keep you on for another couple of hours to tell some more stories. I got a lot of them. Well, let's let's go into what happened after. What was the, sort of the next phase yeah, after so Steve? Actually, you're you're you were involved in the legal team that actually worked on the normalization of relations um, during the Carter administration, right? You were uh, uh, you were a lawyer. You were working in in Hong Kong at the time, and then in China. No. Actually, you no. I the establishment diplomatic relations. The work I did then was in Washington alone, okay, okay. and it was in the State Department. Oh, and it was subsequent State. to the establishment of diplomatic relations that I moved to Beijing. Okay, and then then you were you were uh, working for a couple of firms there. Right? So let's, let's talk about that. When you were at State and you were working on on what's involved in uh, legally in in the actual establishment of normalized relations with a company, a country with with whom. Washington well, has long been estranged. <laughs> if you didn't have the issue of Taiwan, actually, it would have been a very simple uh, exercise because it's within the president's power to establish diplomatic relations with whomever he chooses. It's an executive branch power. The major issue arose in terms of the necessity to maintain unofficial relations with Taiwan, both to create a space within the communique that President Carter negotiated with the mainland, mm -hmm. that we could maintain these unofficial relations with Taiwan and I then create. So what we needed then was first an executive order and then ultimately legislation, which preserved the unofficial relations with Taiwan and allowed us to maintain this organization, this unofficial organization in Taiwan, which carried on those relations. So something called the American Institute in Taiwan. So it was both explaining to the mainland what this was all about, working with the Congress to get that legislation through, which was not easy, given the difficulty of the, the sensitivity of maintaining relations with Taiwan and how the Congress objected to the way the administration had handled it. And in addition, the termination of the mutual defense treaty that we had at that point in time with the Republic of China. And you managed to get that all done in, in, a, in fairly short order then? 
Yes, we did. And I, well, we, I, Very impressive. I worked on, we worked on it, you know, very secretly for a couple of years before that. So we were, we were reasonably well prepared. It was one of the lucky times in life where when you are an Indian or a Xiao Tu Do and they're <laughs> only chiefs, you get a lot of responsibility as the one Indian. So as a 27 year old lawyer, I had more responsibility than I probably have had uh, during the rest of my life <laughs> because it was so secret that you basically would report up to the legal advisor who reported to the secretary of state, to the national security advisor, to the president. So it was a very, very small team that did that preparatory work. And can you, can you give a sense of how much pushback there was against it at the time? It was, uh, again, then by the time it was the relations were established, I was 29. I still remember sitting in front of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and being absolutely uh, ripped a new whatever yeah, sure. um, by these senators who felt that we had sold out American interests, who felt that we had not protected Taiwan sufficiently, who felt we had sold out America to red China. It was, it was a very severe criticism. And the legislation which ultimately resulted was not the legislation that we in the executive branch had proposed, and it probably has created uh, some bumps in the road over these 36 years, 37 years. The good news is the criticism that was made in 1978-79 of what we did has turned out to be wrong, that we've had peace in the area, that we've had a Taiwan that has prospered, that we've had a mainland that has prospered beyond what we could have ever dreamed. So the criticism that we had made a historical mistake is wrong. And I go back to that period. When I'm criticized for things that I do today, I go back to that period and I take great heart in thinking, well, I took enormous criticism back there about selling out American interests. But in fact, when I look back, it was President Carter who was extraordinarily visionary in what he did. And the folks who worked on it did, in fact, a great job, some of whom are with us, a number of whom you know, have passed. Richard and, and Holbrook, you, Mike Oxenberg, exactly. folks who really did incredible things during that period and took incredible criticism. And today, when we hear a lot of criticism, sometimes about what we're doing, I take heart in that period. It's easy, though, to, to look back at that early period after reform and opening began and to point to the successes of engagement, you know, Deng Xiaoping putting on a cowboy hat and coming out. Uh, I mean, it, it, there, there was a lot of, there was a period of smooth sailing and of course, uh, that first decade, there, there was a lot of very palpable progress. Um, China didn't come in for a whole lot of criticism uh, during that time. What about the decade that followed, though? I mean, especially the immediate aftermath of Tiananmen in 89. I mean, then suddenly the work that you did may, maybe was once again called into question. So, Jan, can you talk a little bit about what the National Committee faced in the aftermath of 89? Well, the day after, so the main events occurred on a Saturday, and we called together our board of directors, actually our executive committee, on a conference call. Mike Lampton was then the president of the National Committee, and it was a Sunday afternoon, and we had the eight or so people on the call. And these were very thoughtful people who recognized that terrible things had gone on, and this was going to cause a huge rift in the relationship. And that most everybody was going to distance themselves from China and from having anything to do with China. As Steve says, the 
people who were in the forefront of making this relationship work took a huge amount of criticism. The National Committee didn't so much. We were doing a lot of things that made people happy, you know, ping pong, acrobats, performing arts companies. Then we started in the 70s and 80s trying to make things more substantive. The, the Chinese wanted the big public events that drew a lot of attention, but we kept sneaking in some more sustenance kinds of programs, university presidents, mayors, etc. So we hadn't come in for major criticism, but we knew that if we decided that we would continue doing some exchanges with China, that there would be a lot of criticism at that time. But our executive committee and then eventually our whole board felt that it was important to keep some channels open and some things going. So we decided that we would continue with our work, but under certain conditions. And we had a whole, we had a set of five points that we said we were going to live by, which included not trying to run our exchanges and our programs with China on the same basis as we had before and not letting politics either in China or in the United States affect that because our purpose was to bring people together and to bring them together whether it was good times or bad times. And you can argue that it's most important to do so in a time when the relationship is fraught, with, and it was certainly fraught at that time with all sorts of things. So it, I'm not saying it didn't affect us. We had to lay off one person because uh, our workload was reduced so drastically. Um, but we did continue with some of the basic programs that we were doing and slowly build ourselves and the relationship back up. But we tried to do so being true to our own values and not letting either people in China or people here dictate to us what they thought we should do. And how long did that slump last? How long was it before you guys were bounding back? Probably we had about two or three fallow years. We still did a couple things along the way, but it took until the mid-90s, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, mid to late 90s, before we were back to the levels that we had been doing before. And then how about the, the end of the 90s? And you know, I'm thinking particularly of the, uh, the embassy bombing. Um, how, how, how did you handle that? Well, we, I'm taking this on because Steve wasn't yet here. (laughs) One of the things we prided ourselves on was having, we're a small organization. We've always been quite small. The Chinese are always astounded. They think we have hundreds of busy bees (laughs) sitting here working. Occasionally when we uh, we pass um, our building with the Chinese delegation on a bus and didn't have time to come in and we'd point over there and say, oh, that's that's our building. They say, oh, you have that whole big building? That's wonderful. Yeah, 6 East is all you, right? Well, no, actually, we have one suite of rooms on one floor. I think I actually know your entire staff. Now now we've we've upgraded, and we have a wonderful new office with the whole floor. And some terrific people now, I have to say. Yes, we do. And we've always, we've been really fortunate. We've had a terrific staff throughout the years. So we've always prided ourselves on the fact that we have a small, very nimble staff, and that has allowed us to react very quickly. So if there's a crisis in the relationship, if there's an issue that we think needs a lot of attention, 
we have the ability to sort of turn on a dime and say, okay, we need to focus on this. We need to have a conference. We need to do a conference call. We need to bring people together. We need to do something. And I think that's one of the key strengths that we've had over the years. And we hope to be able to continue that in the from the 50th year on, but being able to react quickly. So we had a series of conferences every time there was something like the Belgrade bombing or the EP3 incident, you know, those kinds of things. The other unique thing about the National Committee, in addition to being able to respond quickly, we have benefited enormously from the assistance and help and support of the academic scholars who work on China and retired foreign service officers. Who the people who comprise your board. The people who comprise our board, and we've always tried to suss out who the up-and-coming young China specialists are and put them on our board and have them involved with us and so that they do feel part of our community. And that has been an enormous boon, and I would say we would not be half as successful as we have been if it weren't for the help of that. And, and that goes back from the people that Steve was talking about and you were talking about from Oxenberg and yeah, let's check some names here. I mean, because you guys have had a, a t- tremendous roster of very, very good leadership here, and uh, I think yeah. some of those name people uh, were celebrating the 50th anniversary of your organization, right? As who, um, you, some of your predecessors, Steve, who really deserve the, the big shout outs. I think they all deserve. Sure, you know, I think uh, you know one of the interesting things about the presidents of the committee is they all serve for a very long time. Yes, it's they have. Very yeah. unusual to have an organization, and it's a testimony both to them as individuals and to the culture of the organization, that it's a very cohesive culture. And I've run organizations a hundred times, or certainly 10 times bigger, than no, a hundred times bigger than this, actually, and um, it's very different. It is very different. And managing a small, cohesive operation is very different from managing a very large, less cohesive operation. Who do you typically work with on the Chinese side? We have probably a dozen Duiko Danwei, which would include the China People's Institute for Foreign Affairs, uh, the State Council, Beida, Tsinghua, Fudan, the Foreign um, Ministry, Yoxie, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, China um, Foundation of International and Strategic Studies, China Contemporary, in- China Institute for Contemporary International Relations, CAS. We have over the China the Human Rights Development Foundation. Um, the, the China Center for Economic Research. We have lots of Doiko Damwei. And it's a testimony to, you know, the South China Seas Institute. You know, it's a testimony to kind of the strength of the brand of the National Committee. That when you talk about, you ask me about our predecessors, who all have, my predecessors, all who've worked with Jan, is that they built the brand that when I came here 11 years ago was an extraordinary brand in a lot of ways. What I except when I was in the U.S. government, when the brand is pretty well established. <laughs> when I was at a law firm, when I was at Lehman Brothers, when I was at Carlisle, it was very much about brand building within China. Then when I left that and came into the not-for-profit center, I was presented with an extraordinary brand. And the issue I was confronted with is, what is the most productive way? we can make use of this extraordinary brand. We're a Chinese leader. If you go to a Chinese leader and you talk about, you know, ping pong, wai jiao, they know the national committee. They all know it. And even the new generation knows mm-hmm. it. So it's how do you then use that 
to improve the U.S.-China relationship. And that's really what our task has been. Yeah, and so let's talk about some of the ways in which he's, I mean, I know that you've brought many delegations of, of congressmen and senators, of, of congressional staffers, of, of you've brought- And you've met with that every I've, single- yeah, just, yeah, every, your, departure, <laughs> your departure from Beijing is going to leave a hole a huge in hole. our in our, in our our visits. You know, we I'll don't fly know back how just we're going to- That's it. He's promised he'll come back. We're giving him our we schedule. We much appreciated your straightforwardness, your directness, and your humor- and everything, all the briefings <laughs> Thanks, that Steve. you did. If you had a buck for every briefing you did, you'd be <laughs> a do, lot wealthier okay, yeah. than you are today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and one of my favorite programs, of course, the Public Intellectuals and Policy. Um, talk a little bit about PIP and, and what its mission is and, and uh, whose idea was this. I think it's brilliant. Well, it stems from several people. It has a lot of founding fathers, two founding fathers and one mother. So when David Michael Lampton was the president of the National Committee, two preceding Steve, he used to say to me, you know, Jan, we're not training our revolutionary successors. <laughs> and that was a favorite phrase of his. And it got me thinking because when I looked around at the at then the current generation, which was in the mid-90s, it was very clear that for a variety of reasons, we weren't producing the Oxenbergs, Lieberthals, Lamptons today like we were in the old days. So that's a combination of reasons. One is China is a very different place, and it's open. So now if you're a young student, in the old days, if you were a young student, you had to perforce be a generalist because you couldn't go in to study a specialty and you couldn't do a dissertation on the 18th century railroad track between Beijing and Tianjin. Uh, which is <laughs> what a lot of theses are of these track, days. Right. <laughs> right. So you had to look at China in a more general way. So that with Lambton and Lieberthal and Oxford, you can sit them down and you can say China slash economic development, leadership changes, foreign policy, and they can wax enthusiastically about all that. Younger generation can't do that. It's also not just because China's changed, but because tertiary education in the United States has changed. And students are forced into a specialty very early on. And so most of the China specialists these days know their own subjects wonderfully well. They're a lot better trained than we were. Their language is infinitely better than us, except for Steve, who has extraordinary language. But most of the China scholars of my generation did not, still do not. Uh, these guys have lived, studied, worked there, and they also look at China in a different way. They don't bring the baggage that we did. They look at China, I think, much more equally than we do. But they look at it, they don't look at it holistically. And so I felt the need to recreate the, the old generalists, or at least an opportunity for people to learn from each other by osmosis. Because in the old days, you had the the National Committee, our, our boards, you'd have sociologists, you'd have historians, you had political scientists. They all sat together. They learned from each other. They dated each other. They, you know, got a different vision of China than the current generation is able to. So my goal in starting PIP was to do just that, to bring them together and to give them the same experiences that our Steve's and my generation had had. We submitted that to a foundation, and they rejected it. And I was really disappointed. But just at that point, the white knight of the story came in, and that was Steve's predecessor, John Holden. And John came in just as we were being turned down, and he looked at it and he said, you know, we could add something to this that might make the foundations more interested. And that was not just getting the Chinese to do cross-cultural and cross-discipline studies and learn from each other, but actually 
give, encourage them to and give them the skills that they might need to be a public intellectual and to use the knowledge that they were learning from each other and present it to a broader community, either at a national level, like of Lieberthal and Lambton, or, and we got some criticism the first time we brought this group of PIP fellows together, um, or to do this for the local level. Because some people said, you know, we don't want to be a national public intellectual. We want to work in our own local communities. And so now PIP is a core, a cohort of 20 people uh, every two years for the last uh, eight, nine years. We've chosen this cohort. We now have just are finishing up on our fourth and hoping just yesterday turned in a grant application for a fifth cohort which brings together 20 um, academics for the most part, although some specialists, some lawyers and businessmen and journalists who um, spend two and a half years of, um, it's a supplementary thing, they don't give up their day jobs, but we bring them together to learn more from each other about China and to introduce them to the policy communities in the United States and China who work with one another and then encourage them. And to, to the media communities there. I and mean, to the media, right, right. definitely. That's a real big issue. I think that's an important component. thing. I think they need to know how to, to talk to the media. These people have right. really valuable perspectives. And, yep. uh, right. and, and, and so are we seeing that? We're, we're, yeah, yes. I, I, I've, are we seeing them now? Uh, you, yes, you're, you're they bearing are. fruit, we're definitely. Very Absolutely. With that. Very pleased. Good, good, good. And I'm gonna. I'm slated to meet another bunch of them soon. You are uh, uh, three yeah. weeks from Sunday. Looking forward. <laughs> I mean, that's, a, that's also a great list of people I can tap for the guests on the show. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> I have love it. Done. They all um, revere you, Kaiser. Uh, so uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> you got Fools. eighty people at this point you can choose from. <laughs> can I ask about um, the current phase of U.S.-China relations? Um, you know, the, the last few years, I mean, especially since Xi Jinping's ascent, have, uh, it seems that in many ways the, the relationship has become a, a lot more difficult than it was uh, perhaps for the previous two decades. Jeremy, I even have a name for it. I call it the new truculence. The new truculence. <laughs> so how, how is the National Committee dealing with the new truculence? When, you know, what are the, the new challenges that you have in your work? And is this just the temporary retrenchment, or is well, this? Well, I, I would the say a few things. First of all, I'm not sure that we've entered. I, I'm not of this general view that we have entered into this more difficult phase. That I actually see areas where we have extraordinary, kind of unforeseen improvement, and the focus on the the areas where there's more friction is probably not constructive. So are we doing things differently? Yes, there's certain areas where we're doing things differently. But I'm also very cognizant of the enormous successes. You know, what's the greatest challenge facing the world today? Are you talking about yes. climate change? Yes, I'm talking about climate change. Who led the world in reaching the Paris Agreement? China and the United States. Five years ago, if you asked anybody, is it possible that China and the United States will lead the world in combating climate change, the answer would have been a resounding no. So the greatest issue in the world, the U.S. and China are working together on. What's the second greatest threat? Terrorism. We don't cooperate perfectly on terrorism, but we cooperate pretty well on terrorism. So if you ask Americans today in the election, what are they most afraid of? They're most afraid of ISIS and terrorism. And we actually cooperate with China on that. We cooperate to some degree 
on intelligence sharing. Obviously, we don't support the way China cracks down, but on the other hand, we understand what's going on. So there's a deep, broad cooperation. On the economic side, these investment flows, as you've seen from the report by the National Committee, that's a new thing that we're doing, which is cataloging these investment flows, has created an extraordinarily different environment in U.S.-China relations. It really is different. My first job when I left the State Department was representing U.S. investors in China. And that's what I basically did for the first 10 years after I left the State Department. The relationships that I built as an investor or as somebody representing an investor with those Chinese, we became in a lot of ways a pillar of U.S.-China relations. We were the ones who kind of, when things got bad, we were there because you can't walk away from an investment. You can't just say, well, I'm picking up a factory and going home. Now we're seeing the Chinese doing what we did for the last 35 years, and that's going to strengthen U.S.-China relations. And now we have, you know, when I started in this business, we had tens of students, hundreds of students. Now we have 304,000 Chinese students in the United States in graduate school and in college. That is fundamentally altering the way Americans think about China, the way we're interacting. So is there friction on the South China Sea? Yes. Is there friction on the NGO management law? Is there going to be more friction on it? Yes. But is the fundamentals, are the fundamentals in the relationship strong? I would argue they're very strong. And not only are they very strong, they're strengthening. They're strengthening as you think about let's say, the South China Sea. And what we do on that, you asked, what are we doing? Yeah, we run, we run a maritime dialogue That's right. on the South China Sea with the South China Sea Institute so that the, we use the National Committee brand, so the trust that we have from both governments to have a dialogue in a non-political environment so we can come up with proposals to each government to lessen tensions in the South China Sea. But think about it. How many people have died in the South China Sea as a result of this tension? Right. Not saying that none, somebody may die in the future, but in fact, it's been handled with a lot of maturity. It's not the EP3. It's actually, we coordinate these, and there are no, what they call kinetic incidents. There, are no, there is no violence. So I, I don't agree entirely with the assumption that the relationship is that troubled. Are things going on in China that we don't like? Absolutely. Are there things going on in America that the Chinese don't like? Absolutely. But 37 years of watching this, it's cyclical. It's not systemic. Steve, I have to say I'm really happy to hear that. That's very refreshing because I, I, I have noticed, as I'm sure you have, that in the last couple of years, a lot of people who used to be very optimistic about China and US-China relationships have become extremely negative. It seems to be the prevailing mood. It does indeed. It, it is the prevailing mood. And I again, I, go, I think my first comment was about the criticism I took in 78 and 79 for the work I'd done in the State Department. And we were a minority view saying that this was the right thing. And when Mike or, or, or Dick Holbrook or others would take this fierce criticism, they would stand up and they say, this is the right thing. In the long term, you will understand that this is the right thing. So when I take criticism, I always think back to then and I go, 
okay, it's what I believe, it's what I think, and we'll continue. Obviously, we do not ignore, nor should we ignore the problems, and we're building as many programs as fast as we can to help alleviate those programs. But when I'm asked generally about, uh, alleviate those problems, when I'm generally, when I'm asked about the relationship generally, I say it's, it's actually not bad. Hmm. Could be better. So what do you see now as the most urgent agenda items? Both of you, um, Jan, Steve, why you, Jan, why don't you start? Um, for, the, for the committee, what do you think you need to be tackling immediately? I'm the warm, fuzzy one who likes to focus on personal relationships mm-hmm. because I think that's really important in building. And Steve mentioned um, all this, the things that are bringing the people together and uh, the students here that are going to be seeing the United States in a very different way, and most of them, not all of them, will go back, but many will, and will take that view back. Some may take negative views back as well. But there is this web of relationship that is growing, and it's augmented by the number of adoptions that have been made, sure. the intermarriages between Chinese and Americans. So at the per- people-to-people level, while the U.S. government to Chinese government in some ways are good, but in other ways is not so great. But at the people-to-people level, this is a, as I would absolutely agree with Steve, this is a much stronger relationship but, but that it gets credit for. But programs all your, all your years here. Some so of them, I've the, seen you march into into my place of work with military brass, with, you know, PICOM. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's what I was going to say. To yeah. me, what's most important is, so we, we're now doing a lot of track two dialogues, which I think are great and mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. But for me, the most important ones are when we bring people together or we bring Americans to China and let them see through their own eyes, not reading through whatever newspapers or listening to whatever podcasts they would listen to. This one is a very positive one, but some aren't so positive. Um, But letting people understand themselves what's going on. So we have a number of programs focused on younger generations um, that I could detail, but we don't have time. We are looking to bring people like the military folks that you have met with who in their day-to-day jobs get a whole you know, avalanche of information that's very negative. And, and how do they change? I mean, when they come back, I mean, are do, are their minds yes. changed? I mean, what's happening? They are. They, oh, they that's say, wonderful to hear. Wow. You know, one of them on the last trip said to me, "If unfortunately, he was at the end of his three-year term. He said, uh-huh. I wish I'd had this trip three years ago when I was just first starting this job. Hopefully, he'll come back to China. But yes, they look at things very differently. And it's not just the Americans going to China. Steve and I just sat last week in the room across the way with 14 Chinese diplomats, some of them from consulates, several of them from the embassy, a couple from the mission to the UN, that we had just taken on a two-week trip around the United States, introducing them to American culture and society and history. Starts in Williamsburg, goes to Washington, Pennsylvania, Harrisburg, Hershey, Hershey Chocolates, Milton (laughs) Hershey School. New York. Um, what did you do in Williamsburg? Show them people with beards and tattoos. We, we, we have lectures on you know early American history, the foundations for American foreign policy, race relations in the 1600s between the Indians. When did the uh, the slaves come in, and how did that alter the equation? Yeah, you so, see, I, I can do that for you guys over here now. <laughs> that's right? true. You can. <laughs> so it was really powerful for me. I mean, tears were welling up when we ran around, and each one of them told us what their the most interesting thing that they'd seen and how it had affected them. And wow. each and every one of them 
came forth with these stories that were just, to me, heartwarming. And so that's what I want to do. You get the payoff and warm fuzzies. But, yeah. Exactly. But no, in a lot of ways, you know, if you think about somebody at Paycom who doesn't get to go to China, he's reading intelligence reports about China, he's reading me media about China, he really doesn't understand. And if he goes to China, he meets with the military. But what we do is we get them out of that. We get them to see, not only to meet with folks like you, but to meet with civil society, to go to areas where there's still real poverty. And they understand that China is not just warships and cyber hacking, but there's a whole nother side to it. Now, does it change their mind? No. Does it give them more nuance in their view? Absolutely. And we get diplomats, Chinese diplomats, out from behind their, death, their desks, and they actually sit, they go and they live with U.S. families for a few nights, and it changes the way they think about America. So is it warm and fuzzy? Yes. But does it ultimately change? It's glacial, but I would say yes. I am delighted to hear that. Um, and with that, let me take a short break here uh, where I'm going to uh, want, I want to remind our listeners to check out the SupChina app and to subscribe to the newsletter. SupChina offers a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. You can download the app and check out SupChina.com to subscribe to the newsletter. You can also follow SupChina at at SubChina News and on Facebook at facebook.com slash SubChina News. So, uh, Jeremy, why don't you kick us off with, with recommendations for this week before sure. we um, say goodbye to our e esteemed guests? I'd like to recommend a, a video that has been uh, quite uh, shared on the internet. Um, the New York Times has a short version of it. It's a documentary called The Chinese Mayor uh, about the previous mayor of Datong. Um, and there's 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 a short version on 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 the New York Times website, and there's a full version of the film available on YouTube. But it helps if you speak Chinese to watch the full version. That yes, can be very slow. You're sitting watching a mayor and sit at his desk, and all these people who come in and ask. It's interesting. I've watched part of it, but and he cusses out some of the his uh, <laughs> his uh, 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 people working for him and right. the construction crew, you know, working on fixing up uh, Datong. But yeah, fascinating insight into a, a, a Chinese city. Great, good recommendation. Let's make sure to check out the mayor who shot that. Was that did did. Um, I can't recall his name right now. Anyway, let's move to you, Steve. What do you have for us? I'm just completing a wonderful book that is a side-by-side -side comparison of the 21st century's two most important countries, which are China and India. So Anja Manuel wrote a book. It just came out with a book called This Brave New World, and it's a side-by-side -side comparison. And I know, I guess, a lot about China, very little about India. And it really informed me of the differences, the similarities, and where they're each going. I've been on an India reading kick recently, and I have not encountered that one yet. But it's I will brand new. Just came out last Smoke week. Smoke and Mirrors is another one I really like. That. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely check that one out. Thanks very much. Jan, what do you have for us? Uh, I have a non-China recommendation if that's okay i know that's you okay, guys so you're, you're all very political and we're certainly in the sort of maybe winding down the silly political season uh but this is a recommendation from a mutual friend of all of ours andy andresen who has just recently left china after sort of 40 years of having lived there um andy lived there when i moved there in 1979 
Andy actually was supposed to be working at the National Committee when you moved there in 1979. We had hired him, and we were really excited that he was Frank coming Hawk, to work. Unison yeah, was, um, was just on our show. Unison, I believe. That's that's right, because he we had hired him. Andy had been an interpreter for us on several occasions, and we loved him. We hired him. He said yes, and then all of a sudden I get a phone call one day, very sheepish. Oh, Jan, I really hate to tell you this or ask you this, but... Would you release me from my commitment because I've just been offered a chance to go over to China and be sort of the liaison between the Chinese and the Westerners who are building the first sort of the Great Wall Hotel? And um, I, to know him. I was the lawyer on the deal. That's right. <laughs> so Sheraton Great Wall. When I drive, right. I always sit there and say, "Well, there's I can always there's look at that." Evidence of with, what you with, did. Uh, that's right. <laughs> be proud of that. So Andy sent a, an article around that he he's now retired, left China, and uh, has lots of time to read. And so he pointed out that a new article by Andrew Sullivan in New York Magazine, which talks about the fact that he sort of channels Plato's Republic and talks about the fact that it is the hyper-democratic countries that put themselves most at risk for a tyrant to come along and take over. So he urges all of us to read that. Jeremy, you saw that that piece, didn't you? Yes. Yeah, I did yeah, too. I, I think did. it got passed around very, very uh, thoroughly in my network. Uh, very much worth reading. I, I highly recommend it as well. Uh, I'm going to close out with I, – I have been on this kick where I'm rereading all the books I was supposed to have read in high school and <laughs> discovering why they were really assigned and kicking myself for not having read them back then. And uh, most re- recently it was War and Peace by, by uh, Tolstoy. And I, I don't want to recommend it for anything other reason except for his meditations toward the end, especially the second epilogue on historiography, on how history works, um, his sort of destruction of great man theory of history. It's so very much ahead of its time. It's brilliant. Um, I can't believe what a mind he was. Uh, it's it's an absolute. I mean, there there are pieces of the book, long stretches of the book where. Uh, he it, it just bored the living shit out of me um, just because it's these you know the love story. I mean, I, that's I a lowbrow way to talk about yeah. a very highbrow <laughs> recommendation, yeah. isn't right. it? But, 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 no, but he more than redeemed. It's a good two years of reading. Warren. Yeah, it was. <laughs> but it took me a goddamn long time to get through. But uh, we always compare our program reports, which are <laughs> which are extraordinarily detailed. I say each is a chapter of War and Peace. We now have fifty years of program. Uh, since we do two a year, it's a hundred. Hundred program reports. We have a hundred chapters of War and Peace. Wow, <laughs> which will declassify some. Because they're not really sure. classified. Uh, Steve does point that out to me as I'm writing, getting to the sixtieth page. <laughs> you know, we want the board to read this. Steve, thank you so much for for coming in and joining us. And Pleasure. Jan, it was great. I mean, we were long overdue to do this, and uh, now that I'm going to be back here in the states, uh, we'll see each other more frequently. I trust. We're looking forward. Glad you've to come it. early. Now you just need to come often. Yeah, I, I will. <laughs> So thanks very much. Uh, the Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with production help this week from nobody else. Special thanks this week to An La Cheng. Uh, drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening and we will see you next week. Take care.